the invisible hand, the almighty power of the human mind and the drive of greed, and that special green paper that makes the world go round. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to So You Think You Can Fan and How We Fan in Edition for Politics, Economics, and Why Palpatine Should Have Had a Good Tax Policy. My name is Matt. Sergio, are you the person I'm doing this with today? Yes, you are. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Yes. <laughs> yes, I am. Uh, this is something I have always wanted to do, to go on a recorded rant about politics and economics. I've harangued Sergio into it, and by harangued Sergio into it, I mean that we've both collectively decided that we wanted to do this together. Sergio. What's a reason that you wanted to talk about politics and economics and fiction? Uh, well, we have to go to the mu the much quoted George R. R. Martin interview um, about Ar Aragorn's tax policy. Now, if you don't remember, because it's been <laughs> quite a while, the the interview with George with George goes something like this. He quotes the end of Lord of the Rings, where. Um, you know, it, it said that Aragorn, you know, ruled justly for many, many years, and he was a good ruler. But what does this mean? Yes. What was his tax policy? What was his thing on the orcs? Did they just genocide them all? Was there some forced relocation? Uh, you know, deportation? Like, what, what happened to them all? Like, what is being a good ruler all about? Yes, and much more interestingly, in my opinion, is who's deciding what a good ruler would do. Because depending on who you're asking, namely uh, a toothbrush-mustached guy from Germany compared to, oh, I don't know, maybe a, a white wig-wearing guy from America in the late 1700s, you might get radically different answers on what a good leader would do. You might get radically different answers on what good policies are. And the world changes and people change within the world. And as those people in the world change, people's views and opinions also change. Uh, but as I know what everybody's going to say. It's boring, right? Politics and economics are boring, right, Sergio? Uh, yes, ask Star Wars fans. Yes, yeah, Star Wars fans fucking hate politics and economics Star of any kind. Star Wars fans have never yeah. taken an economics class. <laughs> they never have. And they never will, in all likelihood. Uh, because it's not a core class. But, first off, we are not Ben Shapiro fans. We think he's a little cringe, in all honesty. So, politics, it's important to a lot of things, but I, I think Sergio and I, we can both agree, politics should not pervade all essences of all fiction ever written from now until the end of time that would be boring and appallingly terrible yes this is about the, the internal it, politics of worlds stories and fiction and not um badly inserting inserted political messaging um to use your uh thing as a soapbox as michael would call it Yes, yes, that's a very good way of putting it. And in fact, I have a, a special note here that I've just written, and we'll bring this up a little bit later. But regardless of which politics and which economics you use in your fiction, you should really only kind of use frameworks from the real world, like 
monarchies, feudalism, democracy, republics, uh, the potato famine, uh, trading of steel. All of these things are great real world things that exist and existed, but you shouldn't, aside from really neutral things, it's probably not a good idea to directly remake something from the real world in your work of fiction that is political. Uh, I've seen many, many cases where people tried to do like American gun laws in works of fiction and they, they suck. They just suck. I'm thinking of more and more examples to bring up later on down the line, but mainly just don't, just, just don't bring up really specific real world issues because you're not very likely to think about it clearly. If it's a contemporary modern political problem, it's not super clear if there is a great right specific answer. I think there is one solution to a lot of things in a lot of cases, but that one solution is very rarely clear in the same lifetime that problem was created. Anyhow, though, uh, going on downwards on why you should care about this, you should if you're getting shit wrong about just how political systems work, like if you don't know how a serfdom works or how a monarchy works, then people who do know what those things are and then watch your show or read your book, they'll look at what you've written and think, what the fuck is in this? It's a lot like how guns work between people who don't know anything about guns and then watch movies versus people who know a shit ton about guns and then watch movies. If you don't know Jack Diddley shit about how a gun works, you can play games like Call of Duty Vanguard and watch movies like Rambo as much as you want and it will never be an immersion breaker. However, if you are someone who's either been with guns for a long time you just happen to know about guns or god forbid you were actually actively in a military service and so you are intrinsically aware and familiar with firearms then you're going to go watch a whole bunch of movies and play a bunch of video games and you're just constantly going to be reminded oh somebody made this and it's really wrong so don't if you're gonna if you're gonna use real world stuff be accurate do be accurate especially with just neutral stuff like large scale political systems. Yeah. Now, boring. Go ahead. Especially if you're going to represent somebody else is political system. If you don't yes. know anything about it, don't write about it unless you've done some research. Like if I'm reading a, a story that has to do with the American government and you write Congress passed a law, I'm going to go, did it go to the president's desk? Did he get a chance to veto it? Because that's just not how that works. Like, Yeah, um, I get that a lot when I read Reddit nowadays. <laughs> or or just, just just general things like uh, like France is having an election right now. And they have a, they have a, a round, they, they use the round base system. Um, uh, and if, if you didn't know that, if you're writing a story in France and you think that it just works like it does in America, that's wrong. Someone from France is going to, to point that out. Yes, and it's not going to be pretty, depending on how much weight that critic has. And 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 again, if even if there's a country with with a that has a system that you don't uh, don't like agree with, doesn't mean you have the right to misrepresent it in any way. Yes, I, I consider misrepresentation, particularly of such a political nature, to be a kind of a form of censorship or straw manning. You should just just endeavor to try to be accurate, unless you know 
you're making satire or parody. But even then, like satire and parody are that they're funniest when you embody the spirit of the original. Anyhow, though, politics is only half of what we talk about today. The other half is a really, really, really intrinsically important thing. Something I think is more important than politics most of the time, honestly. Economics. Economics is nebulous to a lot of people. Sergio, did you ever take an economics class? I took a very bare-bones economics class online in high school. It was not a requirement for my degree, because I'm in biology. Not a requirement for a biologist to know about economics. And as, as far as I'm aware, many high schools in the USA don't even teach a high school economics level class. And if they do, it's super not required. And I find that just befuddling, bizarre, and nonsensical. We have arts classes. This is my politics that somebody's going to hear about, I'm sure. We have arts classes, and we don't have economics classes. We have PE classes, and we don't have economics classes. That just seems strange and bizarre to me. But a good way to look about economics, economics, if you are personally bored, and you're like, Matt, why the fuck do I care? Well, Economics, in a very simple description, is like macro psychology. It's the psychology of how everybody thinks about things together and knows what other people want to do. It's kind of like a logic problem ongoing in real time. Everybody knows what everybody else wants to do. They all want to make money. But how you go about making money is very different from everybody else. And what you specialize into can make it very different. And if you're a stockbroker or a stock trader, even then there's lots of different people who deal better with different types of stocks. But at the end of the day, we know Sauron is evil. But what were his tax policies? We'll never know. Anyhow. Any other thing that you'd like to say before we get into the meat of things, Sergio? No, I think I think that uh, this sums up our, our introduction. We can go into the second part of this. All right. So, uh, I think first on the list here, we had economics. Do you want to go ahead and do that first, or do you want to dive into politics? Uh, yeah, we'll do the economics first. All right. So, you want to write some economics into your story, how do you do it? Well, first of all, do not overstress it. I know I said it was really cool and important just a little bit ago, but it's don't just sit down for 20 days and just try to map out the economic history of a dwarven government sect of a larger dwarven conglomeration surrounded by elves and humans and blah, 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 blah. You don't need this massive economic history. What you do need is an understanding of what a country might be trading, where they're trading, and who they're trading with. I'll, I'm going to talk about something later that's really grinds my gears related to not doing this, but trust me when I say you vastly improve the ease of world building when you think about countries with an economic perspective included. If a country is largely by the coast and you have an aquatic race living inside of that nation and they're okay with fishing morally, it stands to reason to me that that fishing based culture 
with aquatic based people would be incredibly good at exporting fish to other nations and therefore would earn a lot of other trade goods that they might not be able to get close to the coast without them. For example, if you're close to the coast, you probably are lacking in really good, solid metalworking. You probably don't have access to mountains or cave systems or just quarries that you can use to get great metals. So they might give away a lot of excess food to a largely industrial nation to get materials and specially crafted devices back. And right there, I'm, I'm barely even putting a fantasy slant on it. And the economic perspective of those two nations has now guided how I'm going to bring them together. The human nation and the aquatic nation, I'll pretend it's a human nation on the inside of the country, those two nations are now working together in an incredibly synchronous trade relationship. The human nation might starve to death if they ignite a war with the aquatic race. And the aquatic race might stand to lose a great deal of infrastructure and development potential if they start a war with the humans. And this is what I find most interesting about economics between countries and nations is when they're trading with each other, they don't want to go to war. It's too costly to go to war because of the lack of growth that would happen during the war. That's what I find most interesting about economics is its power to bring a form of deterrence to aggressive natures. I want to bring up something regarding the history that you can also apply to your thing is with to your world as when I mean thing is mm-hmm. is your economy globalized or is it highly restricted because see we're used to the to, to having a global economy like mm-hmm. my PC has has pieces from China and Mexico um you know transistors that were made in South Korea Dozens and dozens of countries came together to make the PS5 sitting on my desk, the the blue snowball that I'm recording with this. But hundreds and hundreds of years ago, everybody thought each other was a shithead, and that just wasn't a thing. You had very specific people that you could trade with, and you could have uh, people that you could not trade with. Like, you you traded with two countries, you didn't like Portugal, you didn't trade with them. More than that. Portugal didn't have anything worth the travel expenses unless it was in great bulk. This is why that's why trade has changed so much so recently is because technology has grown so much better with planes and better boats. We can bring wildly massive amounts of cargo from one nation to the next at far cheaper costs. And with that trade, we can actually build more transportation and trading vehicles and devices. That's another important thing that I should thank you for, for bringing that up, Sergio is how the trade is occurring. If two nations neighbor each other, it's pretty obvious to see how the trade could happen. But if two nations are on the opposite sides of a continent, separated by mountains and rivers and lakes, how does that influence their ability to trade? Do they see a massive change in the global culture and infrastructure when airships are invented? Who knows? But I think this is why I find economics fascinating is because it's really easy and simple to tie it in 
to almost every aspect of how a country or a nation is formed. If a country or a nation wants to create itself, it should probably do it next to natural resources initially. But if it's surrounded by other developed nations, you could actually see independent groups of people separating out of a nation, establishing themselves somewhere that's not sustainable, but has valuable resources, and then they can trade those valuable resources to other nations in order to obtain valuable and extremely necessary goods for food and infrastructure growth for their populations. And you might find that to be strange. Why would people live somewhere where you don't have enough food? I don't think enough people in the world realize there's a lot of big nations that are heavy importers of food and don't export. And uh, another good economic tale is the the is that I I, I, that I can cite here that I find very interesting is China. So a long, long time ago, yes. there's a little thing that you may have heard of called the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire was doing their whole thing of expanding across Asia and Europe and all that. And they ran to this little dinky place called China. That's the, not to call Chinese people dinky, but that's just that's just how we're how, that the, the, the nation hyperbolic. at the time was quite yes. small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they, they they run into China and they're like, uh, "Oh, I love your silks and your rags and stuff like that." We also have some stuff, and they were like, "Yeah, you got garbage. I'll take that silver though." So we we they hand the Romans handed them silver and they handed them goods and they you know ran back to to Rome mm-hmm. with the stuff and then mm-hmm. time went on and you know the Roman Empire fell off and China stopped getting these weird white people in their country for hundreds and hundreds of years. Then a new set of white people showed up, the British. And they were like, yo, what's up, China? Uh, Can we get some of that stuff? We got like guns and stuff. And the Chinese responded them in Latin because that was the language that they traded from the people with the West. And they again were like, we don't want any of your stuff. We don't think it's any good. It's just all barbarian stuff. If you give us some silver, we'll trade you the silk. And what happened to China? A bunch of people showed up with guns and manhandled their country. You may also remember Japan, which was very isolationist. And then America, who was like, if I just start selling my goods to literally everybody, I'll make a ton of money. So they rolled up to Japan with some guns and were like, open the country and I'll sell you these guns. Yep. And uh, I think at the time, Japan was embroiled in a massive civil war, wasn't it? Or at least that was yeah. the warring area or the war. Uh, yeah. And, and then the 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 uh, the empire got guns and they shot all the samurai and then they uh, established the, uh, you know, the the imperial Japanese. Um, well, the, well, the shogunate went out and then this is the empire. Oh, no. that Yeah. Yeah. That's what you mean is the death of the shogunate. Yeah. And trade also goes hand in hand with wars, for example. I think you remember the funny uh, uh, tooth toothbrush mustache man. Well, yes, toothbrush, yes, toothbrush mustache man, man had had thing had had a had a penchant for wanting to take over the world. But you know what? You know what he was severely lacking. His country doesn't have any oil in it, and you need oil to run steel. your tanks to take over the world, as well as steel. And you know who sold him most of his oil? A little a little guy named the Soviet Union. So when mm-hmm. he decided that, you know what? I'm going to take the Soviet stuff for myself. Soviet Union said, nope, 
no more gas. So Hitler was in a, was it was it a little race? I either capture the Soviet Union and take their gas, or I run out of gas. Hitler ran out of gas. The same thing can be said for the Imperial Japanese. Japan doesn't have good iron supplies on their island, uh, and they 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 imported most of their steel from America. And then America decided to hit them with a little thing called sanctions if they wouldn't stop trying to take over the world. So Japan had a choice to make. Take out America's fleets in the hopes that America wouldn't come after them for a few years so they could secure oil because they were also running out of oil and steel in the Dutch East Indies. Or basically they just have to stop. So they attacked Pearl Harbor in the hopes that they would take out the Pacific fleet's uh, capabilities for a couple of years and they could go get that. And it backfired on them because they didn't take out the whole Pacific fleet. It was elsewhere. Yep. And then uh, there's a lot of misquoted attributions around that time. A couple people like to think that Japanese, there was a Japanese admiral, I think it was Yamato, who said the giant is awakening. That was from a movie. That wasn't an actual historical yeah. quote, but it's very accurate to how the Japanese people viewed uh, that confrontation with America, or at least how really um, prudent Japanese admirals viewed conflict with the uh, United States is they knew it was not going to end well. One actual quote was, I think this is also from Yamato, who said, I will run wild for six months in the Pacific, and then shit's going to hit the fan hard. So we've got six months in this bitch, and then we're done. And then, lo and behold, six months later, the tides have turned horribly for the Japanese in the Pacific War. Things are getting really pushed back to the Japanese mainland, and they just have no way of getting back out there because they're starting to run really low on steel and oil. But yeah, economics are wildly important. They're more important now than they were ever before in human history. They get more important every year, honestly, just to the interconnected nature of the world. Trade and economics is how pretty much everything has been done. And the reason why is pretty simple. Imagine you're playing a game called Team Fortress 2. Can you think about that, Sergio? I'm sure you've never heard of the game, but imagine a game called Team Fortress 2. Imagine in Team Fortress 2, you have a hat that's colored blue, but you hate blue. You want red, but you only have a blue hat. Then somebody else comes along with a red hat and he says, oh my God, I fucking hate this red hat. I wish I had a blue hat. You, with your blue hat and desire for his red hat, you look at him and you say, hey, you, uh, you want this hat? And then he looks at you and he says, oh, fuck yeah. And with your exchange of blue hat for red hat to gain what both of you want, it's beautiful to me because both of you, despite having literally created nothing and put in very little work at all, you both feel like you got a better deal than the other guy did. You both have that feeling that I, I did good. I'm better off now. And you didn't have to shaft anybody along the way. And you didn't even really have to do much. Somebody else did the work for you. That's why trade is amazing. That's why economics are amazing. And it allows for development of specialization in a lot of other ways, too. You think back to early agrarian societies and people all had to farm. But as farming got more advanced, people could go make pots. People could go become blacksmiths. So they didn't have to spend time on the farm. And as they did that, they 
didn't have to basically start over every time they'd make a new tool once every couple of years. They could make tools and pottery constantly and just sell it off to people. And as it got higher quality, everybody benefited. Anyways, though, before I go on too many other divergent rants about economic histories and policies across human history and our nature, what if you have fictional resources? Mithra. Mithra. Adamantite. Onumpanium. If you have one of these strange fictional resources in your work of fiction, how does that affect your economics? Well, how does steel affect the world market? How does oil affect the world market? How does electricity affect the world market? Nuclear power, fish, food, trading of all kinds. What kind of good do you have? Think about that first. Research a similar good just at a surface level. Just a, just a couple minutes about the history of a similar trading good. If you're making adamantite, an incredibly powerful, hardened material, who's smelting it? Who's working it? Are you selling it to people raw so that they can refine it? Do you only sell refined adamantite in one nation? And then it gets turned into other stuff later in another country. All kinds of things that you can think about. And it's your world. You can create anything about it that you want. And that's what I love about it. And uh, yes, we will talk about Wakanda. Don't worry. We will. We will talk about that. Anyways. Politics. Uh, you want to start us off, Serge? Uh, yeah, so there are a few, there are many, many, many different political systems that have been used throughout time. Uh, we're going to go over, uh, so, some, some common ones that you will probably use in your D&D campaigns, as you know, we're big tabletop fans. So anybody who's making a general fantasy will use feudalism, um, which if, 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 if you aren't basically aware of, uh, how feudalism works, you have a, a lord. Uh, who owns a set of land and he owns uh, he basically owns slaves. They were called peasants or serfs. Uh, the serfs are tied to the land. They can't go anywhere. And their their sole purpose is to farm and give a piece of it to um, the, 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 the Lord. Uh, and then usually Not a piece of the land, the food, they do the service of the land for yes, somebody they do the service of the land. Mm-hmm. And the and the and the Lord takes takes a bit from them, and usually there are a bunch of these piece these these lords all over the land, um, in what is usually called a fiefdom, and there's usually like a a king who rules over all of them, and they they give him a little piece of the pie. Yep, it's it's pretty much just and then he, and then and then in in, in return he gives them security. Yes. Yes. And the difference between this and just American slavery that a lot of people think about is technically the serfs of a feudal society did come into it of their own volition and volunteering. But it's I mean, I think it's pretty obvious to most people you would if you were the son of a serf, you were born into it. You were expected as especially as the son to take over after your father and continue. You also couldn't leave this like you're stuck. You're, you, you, you have I mean, to farm. I mean, you could, you, you could try to leave it. 
um, you would either get killed by brigands and highwaymen, or you would get, you know, targeted by the people who you used to live under because they would be a little pissed that you just up and left. If you were, you know, a newborn and you grew up and you didn't sign into anything, sometimes maybe possibly you would be basically free to go wherever you wanted. Yeah, not necessarily though, especially if you were the first more son, it was expected that you take over after your father. Uh, women, not- women had a differently, but also shitty time. What was that search? I, I'm also going to point out cause you, you, you met, you mentioned for example, that, that, uh, um, if I might be getting a little heavy, but these pet the so the idea of a of a uh, of a nation state is a relatively more modern things modern thing in these feudal yeah. societies you don't t- you don't go to a, a peasant and and and, and uh, you go what is your eth- like like what is your nationality he goes I am a Brit and I am proud of it he is of that land. A lot of the times, like 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 like, like the Brit- Britain as a nation state is new. Back then, Very yeah, new. you were on the on the Isle of Britain, and Britain was separated into uh, boroughs, like a uh, bunch of shires. They they usually ended up in shire, but to to a peasant, they were a member of that shire. There was an overall king of Britain that resided over all of these shires but you know the concept of waving that you know that union jack just just didn't just did, every, everybody had their own flag every you, your, your army was a bunch of smaller armies combined together yeah yes and that was even with the king before they had a fully united kingdom you can imagine the sheer amount of infighting going on it was not a great time to be alive by modern standards, but back then it surprisingly had improved quite a bit. Not a lot of people in the modern day really appreciate the fact that back in medieval feudal society, fucking nobody had rights of any kind. If your lord was pissed at you because you didn't do something, you might just be killed depending on where you were living. And not that many people might care that much about it. Unless you were a really good person, in which case, yeah, a few people would get pissed. But that just leads to more uprisings and leads to more instability. There was not a whole lot of security as a citizen back then compared to what we have now. Hell, you weren't even a citizen. You were, if you were not nobility, you were a serf or a peasant. If you weren't either a serf or peasant or nobility, you were on your way to becoming nobility because you were probably serving in an army. And that's why so many young men joined armies at that time is because that was quite literally the only way to not be stuck on the farm forever. And even then, you still went back and you farmed when there was no war. But... Oftentimes, if you served successfully in the war and you did well, you were actually given that land that your family was working permanently as a stead. You were you were finally able to freaking own the land that you lived on. You would pay into the nobility probably still. You wouldn't pay into your sep- your um your equal nobility, but you would pay in to the lord. You would still be in service to the lord, but it would be in a, a more positive heightened level 
I want to draw your attention to an image I'm about to send you because I, I wanted to, I, I was going to use the Kievan Rus hmm. as an example. And if you look at this map of the Kievan Rus, which I wanted to highlight because you can see all of the the various uh, peoples um, that made up the the Rus, which was the, the, the green area on the map. But on the top of where Russia, what is modern day Russia, there is a ethnic group known as the Chuds that I think is really funny. I don't know what, I don't know what Chud Z is supposed to stand for, but the fact that that is there is really funny to me. Chud Z. Chud Z. Oh, but yeah, if, 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 if you, if you go, if you go back and you look at like areas of like the Kievan Rus or, um, Germania, you'll, you'll, you'll notice one, it's not in the traditional borders. Like the Kievan Rus is, um, uh, where Ukraine, Ru- Russia, and Belarus was, and it's 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 a loose collection of these varying tribes and whatnot that all decided that we're going to, you know, we're going to live under one guy, but we're all very much separated. Same thing with with Germany. It was a federation of states that came together to create the country known as Germany. Yeah, yeah. There's just there's a, a hundred different ways of looking at politics and incorporating it into your into your story. But anyways, that's enough real world feudalism for now. How do you use that in your story? Sergio, what do you think a lot of fictional stories, particularly maybe YA novels, don't get right about feudalistic societies? Primarily is that we mentioned is is that they make the peasants act like citizens of democratic institutions. Um Yes. Yes, don't do that. They're peasants. They're serfs. They don't have rights, and they knew it. Although they didn't really know what rights were, they still knew that they didn't have rights or security at that point in time. Yeah, they they, they also though, didn't. Go ahead. So they also don't like. I, I'm not gonna like. Obviously, like most of them have been like, man, this sucks. But for a lot of them, that was just the way of things were. Like, don't be like. Ah oh, yeah, like like a peasant being like, oh yeah, man, just just you wait. You know what 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 if we could live in a society where we voted on things? Like don't like I'm sure yeah, that no, guy they existed. About that. But for the for the most part, that was just that's just how it was. Like like that in their mind, this is the only way things can be. You know how guys talk about how much of a bitch it is to get dates on Tinder. I think that's probably how peasants talked about nobility and serfdom back in the day. They just, they knew it was bullshit. They knew it sucked, but they just didn't have the better answer. And they didn't have a way of getting to a better answer. So they just lived with it. Anyways, aside from political Tinder and having shitty dates, I think the best way to incorporate feudalism into what you're designing is... Understand how it fucking works. Where are the lords? Do the lords have keeps and holds? Do the keeps and holds actually hold and keep away the freaking bandits? If bandits are just constantly attacking and raiding a keep or a hold, why do people stay there? Why do they not try to emigrate to a different lord's area? Why can't they? Would the lord try to attack them and chase them down and kill them if they did that? These are... Economics and politics that you incorporate into your story, you don't pick something up from real life and shift it into your story. 
What you do is you use economics and politics as a tool to ask yourself predetermined, guided questions about what is going to happen next in your story. I know a lot of people like to think that stories just magically just complete themselves. No, you ask yourself questions each step of the way. And when you answer the question, you know where the story could go next. Now you can answer it in many different ways. Does a feudalistic society happen to be more idealized in your fictional story because of amazing characters that were heroic and tried to work for the right things? Or were there a bunch of shitheads after shitheads who destabilized the whole region everybody in kind of a tantrum trying to find some kind of semblance of balance and security and safety in a warring era period of the nation state. I think that's the best way to look at it. Anyways, on to the next political system, monarchies, which is basically just feudalism again, except it's much more cohesive. Each lord answers directly to the king and people stop thinking of themselves as oh i'm just under this guy i'm under this guy who is also under my king not his king my king when the british started saying for the queen for the king all that good shit that was when britain had really become a single nation with a true monarchy and monarchies suck which i put put an asterisk if you're ruled by an emperor uh, a tsar a kaiser any uh language interpretation of the word caesar if you have an emperor that is a monarchy yes these are all monarchies especially if their kids become the next ruler if their kids become the next ruler definitely a monarchy unequivocally going to become a monarchy but all of these systems they're basically dictatorships yes some benevolent but they are dictatorships you just have one dude at the top because there's different types of monarchy. There's the absolute mo monarchy, which is what you're probably more familiar with, which is basically just a dictatorship. The the sole guy in charge has all the power. There's a parliamentary monarchy, which I I personally don't understand, but it's like it's like there's the monarch and then there's the the parliament underneath them. L let me let me put it in perspective. Imagine if parliament and the king is like a mixture of the president and his cabinet except some uh -huh. of the cabinet can be elected. That's that's the basic okay. gist of it. The, the the king would have more power in this in this scenario in that uh yes, the king the king has much more power than the president does in the United States where the king uh, where the US president can issue executive orders for limited scope of things. The king largely could just say uh fuck you, I disagree with you. We're not doing that. He can also fire Parliament and have them all re-elected. Re yes, that's often a, a thing, particularly with the biggest example, of course, being British uh, monarchy, which I think the Queen can actually still do. She can still forcibly call in Parliament. Yes, yes, the, 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 the Queen can, can dissolve Parliament. Which is interesting to me. Horrifying and interesting. Yes. I, I, I believe in most modern governments that have parliaments, the head of state can uh dissolve parliament 
at any time. That is a power that they have to invoke. Yes, that I shouldn't attribute that specifically to monarchies, but yeah, that's that's pretty fair. Which to, to um, me is a frightening power because I remember in, oh, yeah. it happens in uh, in in Yakuza Seven where the the Japanese Prime Minister dissolves Parliament, and I had to go onto Google and confirm that was a real thing that you could do because the founding fathers made sure the president couldn't do that because they knew that the president would be up to some fucky shit if uh, he could ha- have the ability to uh, take Congress out of the, the picture for any long period of time. Yeah. Yeah, it it definitely is a bit of a fucky power. I could not imagine most U.S. president presidents having that level of power. Of course, the reason it's horrifying to Sergio and I, as American citizens, U.S. citizens, it because there's so many checks and balances in the U.S. government. If people ever complain that the U.S. government is slow, it's because of all of those checks and balances to keep everything very slow and very inefficient. Just because a government is slow and inefficient does not mean it's not working as intended. Just kind of sucks sometimes. Uh, Oh, dissolving parliament. What an interesting thing to have in there. I don't think we're, yeah, I mean, I think most people know enough about democracies and republics that they don't need a major description of it. Although I will say, uh, as my own personal thoughts on the matter, USA, I see a lot of people get this wrong. The USA is not a democracy. It is a democratic republic. We are a republic first. We're not a democracy. That's kind of a, a, I think, part of a key difference between why the president of the U.S. cannot dissolve the Senate and the House versus why some other nations can dissolve their parliament. Because we are ruled by the laws. We're not ruled by the people above the laws. Well, ostensibly, I think some of them kind of act like they're above the law. However, if you have a monarchy, which is very likely if you're writing some kind of a, a fantasy novel of some kind, or at least most stories will at some point have a monarchy. Don't just make a one note king. Rulers of a nation are often some of the most important, most interesting people in history. Do them justice. They are really rare characters, and you don't get the best kind of well, intrigue power that they can bring to the table that most characters would. A king or a queen is just super unique, especially if they obtained that kinghood or queendom very recently. That is a really good way to show what kind of character you're dealing with. If you just make a purely evil, villainous ruler, it's just kind of boring, unless that's really deliberately what you're going for. You can do it then, but if you just want the king or queen to be a character, don't play them one note. Be very generous with how you characterize them. They can be some of the best characters in all of fiction if you do it correctly. Any thoughts, Serge? Yeah, I just say that at this this point in time, uh, assassinations every other week, every other month. Uh, yeah. You see, Kings would just die. Lords would just die all the time. It didn't even have to be assassinated. They might get dysentery. 
Yeah, or you might just fall off your horse and bang your If you are infirm, if you are stupid, you're not gonna, you're not gonna, you're not gonna live long, and you're not going to, uh, rule for very, for very much. Yeah, you're gonna be dead as a doorknob in a couple of weeks. That's, I, I guess, the build-off of your point there, Sergio. Stop writing stupid, incompetent kings. It is a trope that is very poorly developed and only best used for satire, in my opinion. Foolish people in charge of a country, one of two things happens to them. One, they become puppet head figures, just completely controlled and blackmailed by somebody else behind the scenes, or they get assassinated. And worth noting is these are not mutually exclusive choices. Oftentimes a king is a figurehead to protect the person who's actually controlling things behind the scenes because the king is the first target for assassination. You want to destabilize an enemy country? Assassinate him. Do you don't want to pay any more taxes? Assassinate your king. You hate somebody? Assassinate the king. It's it's just the best thing that you can do if you're an asshole. Or if you're not an asshole and you just hate an incompetent ruler who's getting you really pissed off, you, you just go kill the king. Look at what happened in the French Revolution. They said no more monarchies. And they fucking meant it. They really meant it. Yeah, no, we, we, we all got tired of monarchies because you know what? You know what World War One is when you really get back down to it? It's a family squabble. A bunch of brothers mm -hmm. and cousins got pissed at each other. It got a, like a hundred million people killed. And we were like, you know what? No, 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 none of that anymore. We're tired of getting, uh, you know, manhandled around by a bunch of rich people who don't care about us. Yep. Mm -hmm. In addition, I'll, I guess I'll weave economics and politics together here a little bit. It's important to keep in mind that the king in a monarchy often has to kind of directly manage how economics and trading are going, has to manage where the sanctions are, has to manage where the trade subsidies are going, has to manage uh, some, sometimes the road quality, depending on what era we're in, that the king might be in charge of delegating management of roads to other people. You gotta, if you want to write the best story you possibly can, you gotta include politics and economics together in a more synergized fashion to ask the right questions of yourself as the author. Uh, anything else specifically about politics here, Serge? Uh, for the most part, no. I think those are the two systems we want we wanted to cover. I mean, of course, th there there are dozens of systems um, over the course of the the history of humanity. You know, we have. Uh, you know, we have, you know, you, you know, you have straight democracies, you have, uh, um, what do you call it? Straight democracies, you got republics, you have caste systems, which are kind of in the, the hierarchy of things. You've got communism, you've got socialism, anarchism, technically, um, oligarchies, plutocracies, kleptocracies, um, I'll call them republics in name only, looking at a, a certain um, uh, nation run by the, the world's largest uh, homosexual in the Kremlin. Um, uh, that's also a good example of a of a kleptocracy. Um, but what, what, whatever, if you are picking a real world system, do the research. And again, if you're planning on, you know, uh, lampooning, parodying, or satiring something, you need to know about like what you're going to satirize. Like if you want to joke about like the Soviet union, not allowing you to criticize Stalin newsflash in the post Stalin era, 
They would literally pay you to, to, to shit on Stalin. Did your dad get purged? Here's a microphone. Yell at everybody about it. We hate Stalin now, now that he's not around to purge us. Yep. Yep. Things can change. Oddly, things can change never, and things can change tomorrow. Everything can change never, and everything can change tomorrow. Uh, There's a very good quote from Ronald Reagan to sum it up. And uh, he said, freedom is only one generation away from dying. I think that applies to everything. Freedom is one generation away from dying. Uh, Terror is one generation away from dying. All kinds of things can change and end in the course of a single generation, depending on who's involved in the generation, what people learned, and how you can maintain it. Uh, One thing that we didn't touch upon much here, but interestingly enough, I think not only is war interesting in a novel, but not a lot of people really pay mind to consolidation, maintaining what you have, running a kingdom, I think is just as interesting, if not more interesting than obtaining the kingdom. There's much more long form, free thinking, future prudence that has to be incorporated into your character's minds and thoughts. If they're going to try and keep the kingdom that they've saved in working order, Or if they hate another nation nearby, how are they going to destabilize it? Uh, You know, maybe don't make your characters terrorists. Uh, Maybe. But all good things that you can ask yourself. Lots of tools here. Lots of narrative tools. So, shall we get into the examples? Uh, Yes. All right. we'll We'll save big W or the big L as I'll call it, for for last or close to last. Um, Avatar The Last Airbender, I think, is a very good example of incorporating politics and economics into a show, which is fascinating to me because it's a kid's show. But I'll specifically give some honor to Bossing Say in the Earth Kingdom. There is a very clear class economic divide amongst the different walls and levels within Bossing Say. You see on the lower level of the professions where there's the least amount of safety is also generally the people who have the least amount of skills. It's the people with really just unskilled labor, people who are just working as dock hand, people who are working to move and haul things from one place to the next. And a lot of people worked damn hard to even get refugee status at that level in bossing say we find and then you go up a level and you've got people who've been there for quite some time and they've generally gotten up to a skilled laborer status or are in a soft science or softer profession and they're much more keen to protect the overall political nature of bossing say they're much more of a, a yes man variety they're willing to work with the state's secret police the daily Isn't that fascinating? It's a children's show that literally has secret police to stop people from saying bad things about the government. And then finally, you have the super upper ring where the government officials, the highly educated technical workers, university level students, all your super, super wealthy bourgeoisie kind of folk live at the very highest and safest level of all bossing say this is all surface level but it's well-developed surface level stuff and it tells us a lot about just the general culture and nature of bossing say furthermore there's a, a scene 
that I specifically wrote down to note here. And this really struck me as I was remembering it, writing it up for, um, uh, for my notes in the podcast today. And that is, there's a scene where a guard inspects cabbages from a merchant. Of course, it's the cabbage man that a lot of people just love from Avatar Last Airbender. But isn't that fascinating? That one scene tells us the guards inspect the food. They will get rid of the food if it's not been authorized. If you don't have a permit, you're not allowed to enter places with uh, with things like that. That says so much about the culture. Are, is there contraband? Is there some kind of mandate that was given out because of poisoned food? Obviously, it's not as detailed as if they'd actually said that there was a mandate or some kind of contraband. But the fact that it's even there is fascinating to me. Is that something that happens in real life? Is you have these bans without permits on certain things, state controlled trade. Very interesting to me. Very interesting to me. And it's told super quickly. It's like 10 seconds. Just, it's a great example that you don't need to spend hours of exposition explaining politics and economics in your fictional world. Just a few seconds is enough to tell us a lot. And, uh, well, it's a good thing to compare cultures to. One thing that I also made a note down here is that that was in great contrast to the subsistence hunter-gatherer living style of the water tribesmen, which is fascinating. We get to see the water tribe tribesmen of Sokka and Katara going around and going out into the real world. But one thing I do have to knock Avatar for there a little bit is Katara and Sokka both seem just completely and totally fine with acknowledging agrarian society cultures, which just seems fucking bizarre to me. Like Sokka and Katara have literally never seen a farm in their lives. They don't know what one looks like. And yet never once in the entire show do they mention, holy shit, you can grow this much food you don't have to hunt for it what now in some fairness it's not like they're literally trapped with no outside contact of any kind but all they really say is it's nice to be in a place that's warm and it's nice to be in a place that's not literally covered in ice that's that's the most that we really get out of them uh anything you want to interject with there sergio no, I'll get to my 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 piece when we get to it. Uh, I'll speed things up a little bit here. Um, there's a Fire Nation fishing village that the gang goes to at one point in the show in Avatar: The Last Airbender. I think this is, is more of a neutral example of economic and political integration into the story because this fishing village has had its lake totally polluted to an unusable degree by a factory that was just recently built on a nearby cliffside. Why? What, why are they polluting, polluting a fishing lake, an important source of food, meat, and protein for a warring nation with predominantly infantry? What? What the fuck? I guess this tells us that the factory is more important than the agricultural society that the Fire Nation has lived with. And they're trying to up steel production a massive amount, but like they couldn't even include some deeper level of why the factory was built there. 
are they doing it to punish the village for some reason? Maybe there's a few government officials or upper military officials that say, well, eh, we kind of don't want to do this to our own people, but got to fight the war, man. But no, the, the, the Fire Nation soldiers in that episode about the, the, uh, the fishing village, they're the most one-note Fire Nation soldiers basically ever are. I mean, I guess they still have a little bit of fear in them, in a human sense. But I compare it back to uh, the Boiling Rock episode of the, of the Avatar The Last Airbender. The Fire Nation soldiers are very human in that episode. They talk and have normal conversations, and they're worried about logistics and things like that. The, the fishing episode is it, it's just so hand-wavy. There's very little of the real world feels like it mattered during much of that episode's runtime. Should we save Wakanda for later, Serge? I think we can hit I Wakanda now. Okay. Or unless you want to, yeah, we can we can save it to the end if you want. It's up to you. It's up to you. But I'm ready. I'm ready when you are. We 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 can save it to the end. Let's talk about Marvel for a bit. Oh boy. Yep. Yep. Let's go into Marvel. All right, so Matt, yes, um, you're an engine. You're an engineer, correct? Yes, I am. Which I I, th- I think because uh, uh, this is something I've known since I, I was a little kid. But um, spider silk is something that scientists and engineers have been wanting to do like a lot of research into because it's it's got a lot of tensile strength for its uh um what do you call it density for its weight for its density yes. and its weight. It's insanely, insanely strong. In fact, if I'll just take a moment, uh, the tensile strength of spider silk compared to steel, holy shit. Spider dragline silk has a tensile strength of 1.3 gigapascals. Gigapascals is... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Let's look at the tensile strength of steel. It's somewhere in the the mega. Yep. Spider silk, if it's at 1.6 gigapascals, that's three times stronger than steel. So pound for pound, spider silk is three times stronger than steel. You can have a spider silk in one third the density and quantity of steel, and it will function the exact same as the steel did. Technically, it, it has different other certain material properties, but spider silk is phenomenally powerful, unimaginably powerful. The structure of it is of keen importance to engineers and material scientists all over the world, because if you could recreate spider silk in a mass produced permanent fashion, totally revolutionize the construction of new materials. We're working on something called graphene. Right now, that's basically artificial spider silk, except it's like got 10 different super properties. It's a superconductor and it can be a perfect insulator. It's got god godless levels of tensile strength. But, but yeah, spider silk, really major research topic. Really, really important. Lots of money in it. Yes, and at least from what I'm looking on the uh, the the page for spider silk attempts to make synthetic spider silk, we've tried it, it. It hasn't really like matched up with the the regular thing, and like we can we could we could be making body armor, uh, insulin pumps, um, 
uh, what's it called? You can use it for laser ignition. Um, all kinds of things. All kinds of things. Bridges. Magnifying lenses. But there, there's yeah, one bri- character who's cracked it. Who is that character, Matt? Yeah. Oh, I, I think it's, I think it's a John Mann Spider Dude. It's Peter Parker. Uh, Peter Parker is a Marvel comic book character whose whole shtick, in case you weren't aware, was literally having invented a fucking machine to expel spider webs out of his wrist. He has the recipe for spider silk that can be so cheaply, so easily replicated, a college student can make it. You can make it in your drawer. If you remember the scene in Homecoming where he's in chemistry class and he opens the drawer and he quickly makes a batch of it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's the world they built for that uh, version of Spider-Man. Tell me, Sergio, why does he not patent it, sell it, make products with it, and instantly and permanently end all of his financial problems forever. Yeah, I I, th- I think um uh <laughs> I think in the comics they tried to address this and like the reasons that they gave is because it uh his spider silk dissolves after like a few hours and then the glory sucks is like ah Who we cares? don't need it. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's like Sell it to somebody and have them do R&D to make it last longer. I mean, he figures it out on how to make longer lasting webs. But 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 no, literally, who cares if it only lasts a couple hours? Imagine that shit for construction safety, Sergio. Well, no, think think about it's the it's the ultimate uh, bandage. Yeah, it is an amazing bandage. Literally man's fucking guts are hanging out of him put him back in spray that spider silk on him it literally doesn't even matter it'll it'll, it'll dissolve after a bit it'll it's biodegradable it'll automatically be coming off by the time he comes into the hospital or it could be dissolved or cut off with a a reagent if you need it i mean the medical uh, practical uses for it are unfathomable peter parker could sell it and save hundreds, thousands of lives by doing nothing. Just sell it. Sell it to let people learn about it and research it and mass produce it. But it's also useful in defense applications. Imagine the cops are trying to non-lethally stop this man from running away from them. All they got to do, point a gun at him that shoots out the spider silk, attach it to this man and suddenly the cops have an instant use detainment agent that chemically degrades bio biologically degrades probably could also be chemically degraded and it's harmless you well i won't say it's truly perfectly harmless i'm sure you could suffocate someone to death on the spider webbing if you used it to suffocate them but it'd be amazing you could just capture somebody and non-lethally take them down the fact that peter parker has not sold it is not only 
strange from his own personal self-interest of just wanting to not have money problems, it also makes even less sense from a sense of him being a moral busybody superhero. I, whenever I read a Spider-Man comic and the concept of his spider web shooters comes up, I immediately am unimmersed in some parts of the lore because he doesn't consider actively selling it. And the storyline doesn't go into him trying to actively selling it and then failing. So there's no reason for him to not try it. I just don't get it. Some of them have tried to say, oh, but how does he keep his identity secret? Fucking have one of your friends who does know your Spider-Man do it for you. Or better yet, go to a defense contractor as Spider-Man and just tell him you'll give him the secrets to the web if in a contract you write up, I, Spider-Man, and I, Defense Contract Man, agree to legally engage in a work of partner, a business partnership for the patenting of the web shooter device. And you can have Spider-Man prove it's him by him just fucking, I don't know, crawling on something. I don't know. And you can make a whole storyline about it getting stolen from Peter so he still has money problems. But at least web shooters go into the real world now because that defense contractor got it. Of course, if it was a bad writer, then the web shooter would remain only in supervillain's hands and would somehow never, ever make its way down to the main consumer, despite the fact that's where all the money is. Speaking of where the money is and isn't, isn't there a, um, a Ferris Manus, if you will? Uh, yes, a, a certain Iron Man. Um, now, Tony Stark um, is, you know, a billionaire playboy philanthropist. Uh, he's basically yes. super Elon Musk. And he yes. has a very, very particular um, invention. Um, while in a cave in the Middle East or Vietnam, depending on which version of the origin story we're going off of, using some palladium from a, from a missile that he, um, uh, that, that, that he built, he creates a miniaturized arc reactor, which for all intents and purposes is a nuclear fusion device that you can hold in your hand. And I think it says that it produces six gigawatts per second or something like that. Gigawatts is already like it, it's six gigawatts is joules per second. So it's, it's already making a lot of energy. Yes. And he uses this to power his Iron Man suits. And he makes a, a specific point um, when uh, questioned by Obadiah Stane in the movie. I don't want the arc reactor getting into the hands of terrorists. And he doesn't make any more and he keeps it for the sole purpose of powering his uh, Iron Man suits. Tony Stark refuses to fix the energy crisis of the world. Yes, I don't because think a lot of people, if it is, go ahead, go ahead. He he has a large arc reactor in the movie. They, they, they specifically set up that the, the Stark Industries has made several prototype arc reactors uh, for, la for, lab, for, for lab use. They're not used for powering because they haven't gotten it down. But enough, Tony yeah. Stark could solve the great energy crisis. No more oil, no more patrol, not, none of that. No, no, we can get rid of, we no can get rid power of standard nuclear to reactors. invade the Middle East. No more power to Russia. No more power to any of them. Because you would be able to circumvent all of their exports of oil and gas with electrical power. 
Yes, uh, mm-hmm. the the uh, the original palladium reactor that he makes, like the very first version, three gigajoules per second, the chemical energy equivalent of 120 barrels of oil per minute, or 3.3 megawatt hours. Hold on, hold on. Did you just say the chemical equivalent of 120 barrels of oil per minute? Yes, at least according to the Marvel Holy wiki. Shit. I don't know how accurate that is. 120 times 60 times 24. That's 172,800 barrels of oil per day times 365. Tony Stark's that one fucking thing does the chemical equivalent of 63 million barrels of oil per year. That's enough. Okay. 63 million barrels of oil. That's as much as the U.S. The whole of the U.S. consumes of oil in days. But that's one device he made. Holy shit, dude. (laughs) Three gigajoules per second, too. That's three gigawatts. Oh, my God. Three gigawatts is a lot. That's that. That's a lot. That's an impressive amount of energy. Wildly, astoundingly impressive. That's more than some nuclear reactors do. Than most nuclear reactors do, I would imagine. Uh, yes, and not only he, right continu- he continues to because because the because the original the original reactor needed uh, uh, palladium. Uh, it, it sounds like it could be any heavy element, but it needed palladium. But the problem is that the constant neutron bombardment uh, was leaking poisons into his body. So using the Tesseract, Tony created um, a whole new element, a whole new element that what? made his arc reactor even more energy efficient. I did not remember and, and, that. And, 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 it's it's an Iron Man too, and he specifically tries to pat he tries to patent it as bad assium, uh, but they but but he said he ran into too many issues and he couldn't he could, he, he couldn't uh, do that. So Tony has has a patent for his own element that he could sell in these arc reactors that give out more than three giga. He doesn't because why somebody might turn it into a weapon. Yeah, Newsflash, what I, I powers enemy that. tanks? Oil. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it just seems very silly to me. It just seems so very, very, very silly to me. And then he goes out and he's like, I'm going to make a suit of armor to protect the whole world. And makes the f- fucking whole problem with... <laughs> what Tony Stark is apparently a billionaire philanthropist. What does he do for the world? Nothing. He 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 gets in Iron Man suits and flies around. Like Stark Stark Industries is a tech company, sure, but it's not like they go around revolutionizing people's lives when he could. Yeah. Now, in fairness, he has technically no obligation to do that. But the fact that he brands himself as a superhero and endeavors to morally enrich and protect the world and then pulls the shit that he pulls without actually supplying arc reactor power to the world. I just find that bizarre. I just find that insane to me. Especially like with, with his whole heart thing. It's not like he like tries to like uh, um, revolutionize heart surgeries and whatnot for people either. 
Like I'm not, mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm not saying throw an arc reactor in the chest of every victim with shrapnel in his heart, but like, you don't have a bleeding heart, Tony, for people in similar situations to you. Yeah. Now we do have a, a good, uh, a good example here in the the uh, RoboCop. Yes, RoboCop is a great example of how economics are used. I'll specifically mention the first movie, although I think the other movies have done a pretty decent job of it. Um, The company is heartless, but they're not stupid. They care about the bottom line, and the bottom line seems to be defense contracts and machines. Now, the very opening scene to RoboCop, as I recall, is a businessman getting shot in the boardroom by a mech that they're going to sell the people. And this mech has a horrible glitch that kills that guy. And while we could get into details about how, Oh, they don't really care that somebody just fucking died in their boardroom right in front of them. In a lot of ways, they don't patent that product for, they they don't give that product permission to be sold to the public. They put that shit on lockdown and continue to refine it in house. But the guy who made that project, he is in deep, 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 deep shit in that movie because he fucked up. And that works in that movie. And of course, Robocop in general is a story of both corporations and corruption. So it makes sense to have evil businessmen part of it. But the businessmen aren't evil with no respect to profit. I find it interesting that company is ostensibly the antagonist of the film. And yet the very end scene is RoboCop saving the board company meeting from a psychopath who was going to going to kill the head president of the company. And the president of the company is shown as a ruthless, but respectable guy. And I like that. Doesn't mean he's a good guy far from it. I think the movie kind of paints him as a, sort of overly severe businessman but it's clear that he's intelligent and that he cares about his company and he cares about actually doing things the right way and he has some respect for robocop too in comparison so we need to talk about the umbrella corporation how it's portrayed in the movies and the games uh the games do a pr- pretty good job of representing all of the um, the various corporations and terrorist groups that run bioweapons. So if you've never familiar mm-hmm. with the, the Resident Evil franchise, um, the bioweapons trade on the black market is booming. It is it is just a normal thing in the Resident Evil universe that a terrorist group will have developed a mutagenic virus that they can transform people into creatures and sell them to people. Or create viruses that can be released on... Um, uh, uh, civilian populations, but can reasonably be contained by standard containment measures of locking off the city. Now, how the Umbrella Corporation is presented in the movies is that they are a normal phardis- pharmaceutical like giant, but on mm-hmm. the side, they secretly develop the T-virus. Now, for the first two movies, 
Um, everything se seems to be be within the, the game's reasoning. The T-Virus is accidentally released. Uh, Umbrella uses its private military company to help lock down the city because they kind of half-own half the city, and they use it to clean up their, uh, their dirty dealings in the city. Now, the thing where it goes completely off the rails is in the third film, where thanks to Umbrella's uh, general uh, in what is believed to be incompetence, but is later to be uh, deliberate, they have infected the entire world with the T virus, destroying mm -hmm. all ecosystems, turning the the the, the planet into a, a giant desert until it wasn't, and eliminating ninety nine percent of all life on the planet. Now, yes, they they have officially killed everyone who is buying their normal products, killed all the governments who are buying their bioweapons, but in uh umbrella boardroom meeting with all of the shareholders, stocks are up. Stock prices are up. And once they get up as high as um, they can go. Once, once, once they get a hold of Project Alice and they can market a cure for the T virus, the non existent population, their profits will be through the roof. Yes. Yes. Who are yes. you selling this to? And then also we oh, have to ask what economy? What yeah. Are are the are the umbrella guards still being paid? I can't imagine they're being paid. If not, I don't know what they're going to buy their money on. Why is anybody still continuing to work for Umbrella? Yeah, their families and their nations have been murdered by them, destroyed, but still annihilated. Umbrella employees just seem to have an incredible loyalty, even though they're completely disposable to the Umbrella High Command, and it only gets worse when you realize that uh, Jorah Mormont from Game of Thrones, the, the, the movie series true villain, uh, as the, the last movie wants to gaslight us into believing, tells us that from the very beginning, Umbrella's mission statement was to uh kill everybody and basically like new Eden purge the world of corruption and start a new life. And all of the the shareholders and boardroom applaud. Great plan. Great plan. There's just one question. Jorah Mormont for game of Thrones. How does this make this corporation any money? Where are we going to sell our product? Who are we selling our product to? Now, it would be one Whoa. thing if the Umbrella Unleak created some kind of special retreat for themselves, and as they they sell uh, uh, their their bioweapons to countries and the world starts to go to shit, they can retreat there and be fine and have their millions. Sure, Russia is currently a zombie-infected shithole, but, you know, we have our money, and if the world continues to go to shit, uh, whatever. We built this whole thing with the money that we, uh, that we sold from, too. And, yeah. to add insult to injury, in the fifth movie, I think it is Resident Evil Retribution, uh, the main character, Alice, discovers that under the Pacific Ocean, there is a huge umbrella facility where they've perfectly recreated the capitals of several major nations for the, uh, for the, the sole purpose of filling them with completely accurate biological clones that will not die and will live completely normal human lives infect them with the t-virus and show it to various countries show show tokyo getting infected by the t-virus and sell it to china sell, show moscow getting infected sell it to the u.s dc to moscow so on and so forth then this has to beg the question so if you're telling me that that that, that this pharmaceutical company can 
clone human beings with with ease as much as just making a like a remote on a uh, conveyor belt as well as having the great engineering capability of recreating entire cities in airtight domes under the ocean why are they selling bioweapons what what is the point that that would make them infinitely more money it is not illegal yeah in fact you could convince a lot of governments to give you an insane insane amount of money for that a lot of militaries for a lot of governments would pay an insane amount of money for that not to mention umbrella makes makes strides in ai in consciousness transferal um that rich people would definitely paid for like like you want to run the conspiracy of like oh yeah the elites suck the blood of babies to keep themselves alive well you could do that in in the resident evil movie verse with umbrella and that's not something that they even think about doing yeah that's uh, it's just silly it's just total silliness now- now, something I want to rant about that uh, the, uh, the the YouTube channel Templin Institute does a great video on, but this has to do, again, with mega corporations. Oh, I'll, I'll also put another an- little anecdote that in the, uh, the, the rebooted Resident Evil movie timeline, Umbrella drops the nuke on Raccoon City, and it is just generally assumed that they get away with it. Mm-hmm. A nuclear weapon was detonated on American soil. Nobody, no, nobody cares. Question mark. They're fine with it. It's fine. Our politicians aren't going to use it as a pretext to invade some nation we're beefing with. It's fine. It's fine. WMDs in Iraq, Raiden. (laughs) (laughs) All right, now. We're going to talk about mega corporations, and there's nothing inherently wrong with mega. Cor- I mean, mega corporations basically uh, exist in real they, life. They if you're exist. a conglomerate, you're a mega corporation. But the problem is in uh, things like uh, Shadowrun and other punk-related uh, fiction, where mega corporations are shown to either own like large swaths of land, like they're their own country or they're on their own planet, but Here's the issue with that. Say you're working at Amazon.incorporated or whatever they are, and Jeff Bezos comes over your uh over your TV to tell you, listen, uh, uh worker, I'm paying $15 an hour. I know I don't give you a bathroom break, but I've decided we're going to war with the US government. Uh, if you turn if you turn to your left, you will be handed a Kevlar vest and an AR-15. Would you fight for the Amazon army? No, no, you would not. No one in their right mind would. You're an American, first and foremost. Or whatever country you're listening to this to. Think of what a BP Gas, uh, Walmart, Apple, Microsoft. You are not fighting in their army to go to war with your own country. Are you insane? Yeah, I think you'd have to be quite impressively stupid. To go I mean, to war sure, for a if, mega corporation. Sh- sure, if you're if you're part of that corporation's private military and you're a, a scumbag who literally only cares about money, sure, you'll take the contract. You'll 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 fight against whoever. 
And then mm-hmm. we can go into some other things. Would a corporate state realistically go to war with anyone? What about sanctions? Don't they sell products to that nation? If if your if your customer um for like is the oil company going to go to war with the 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 people who buy their oil? No. They're going to immediately get sanctioned. No one's going to buy their products and they're going to go bankrupt. Yeah, that's that's the other thing is People involved in economics heavily tend to never want to be involved in war, unless that war has a very direct, very clear payoff. War is if, bad. If, if you have a monopoly on said thing in your in, in your country, why would you go to mm-hmm. war? Would Taiwan Semiconductor Company go to war with South Korea to get uh, Samsung's fabs? No, they already make ninety five percent of all of the world's transistors. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then here's another thing is that a corporation would most likely bankrupt itself trying to make itself its own country, buying all that land, buying all that infrastructure. And then on top of that, a corporation who wants to field its own military, we're not talking about just like a private security or PMC. I'm talking about a corporation buys thousands of aircraft, thousands of, of, of shells, howitzers, artillery pieces helicopters tanks you name it they would go bankrupt why would they do what shareholder could you convince to invest in you to get an army what corporation needs its own army literally modern modern military hardware is super expensive those javelin missiles that the ukrainians are using to blow up russian tanks with are two hundred thousand per tube and they're single use you know the why yeah anyone even has a javelin is because nation militaries when they when they come up with the smart tech they have to sell it if no other country is going to buy the f-35 we're not going to make any f-35s because they're too expensive yep Uh... and then again why would anyone want to live in a constitute in a in a corporation country there's no culture. There's no constitution. There's nothing that there's nothing to inspire people to fight for Apple. Like, oh uh, yeah, I love being an Apple genius. I'm gonna wear my Apple shirt every day. Like, no, it's th- there's nothing to be patriotic about. And funnily enough, this happened in real life. There was a little thing called the British East India Company. I think there was a there's another one. Um, where basically they were corporations that just had a piece of the British military and their goal was to basically uh, administer these colonies and make money. They didn't make any money. You know why? Because because India, for example, didn't want to be ruled over by the British and constantly your workers would get up and revolt and you'd have to put them down. Your merchant ships, because remember, you are a business and your ships, which are used to transport your goods, are now under attack. If British, if Britain goes to war with someone, then yeah, a lot of your soldiers are going to go fight for them. And again, it's open season on your ships. And eventually they collapsed. Yep. Then there was the unfortunate uh, Banana Republic uh, incidents of the Americas where, uh, you know, good old Dole Foods and Chiquita. Well, they didn't used to be Dole yeah. and Chiquita. They used to be Standard Fruit Company and another one. And basically... They basically owned most of several South American companies for bananas. If you don't know, banana trade was 
booming. Bananas were a great industry. And so they were the South American countries were referred to as banana republics because their um their economies were just based on selling these bananas. The working class would basically be oppressed and forced to make as many bananas as possible. The companies would pay the government kickbacks to let them own land and basically lord over these people until South America got tired of it and kicked us out. And you know what? They're still not they're still not happy that we did that to them. It was a terrible thing. Literally in 2007, the United States sued Chiquita because Chiquita was funding terrorists in Colombia to continue to sell their fucking bananas. Yep. Yep. Also, and also just in in general terms of what makes interesting storytelling, Think about this. If there was a story about Amazon, Walmart, and Apple going to war with each other, would you care? The their their goals are the same. Every corporation's goal is exactly the same. Make money. It's not yep. very interesting. Sometimes the path to it can be interesting, but it's I mean it's it's just how it works. They just always not, want not, money. Not, 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 not to say that that, that 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 corporations and greedy businessmen don't make for interesting villains, but in the terms of trying to make a mega corporation into a nationalistic entity, unless that corporation specifically just turns into a government like uh, the the Helgen Corporation and Killzone becoming the Hellgast Empire, that's interesting. But to just keep mm-hmm. them as a as a corporation that just owns a swath of it the United arbitrary. States. Yeah, it feels arbitrary to keep them as a corporation at that point. Just like, why? Just become a nation at that point if you're going to do anything. Now, Sergio. Yes. I think it's time. Yes. Oh, we're going to talk about Marvel's Banana Republic, actually. Marvel's Banana. It yeah, is by definition Republic. a banana republic. It's a, it's an yes, economy it's the, is based off selling one thing. Yep, the vibranium. Well, they well no, because they don't fucking sell it. Uh, this is the diatribe of Wakanda forever. Wakanda is, in no uncertain terms, the single most nonsensical fictional nation idea. I have ever fucking heard of. It is so benignly stupid, so unfathomably, unconscionably unrealistic. It takes me out of the story to even think about it for a few minutes. Where do they get their food? How did they develop their technology without anybody else ever knowing about it? Why did they keep it secret instead of trading it with other people? What immediate valuable purposes did it have? Aside from the simple fact that I think vibranium is kind of bullshit on its own and the fact that it requires really no refining or manufacturing to make it valuable. Why do they not ever trade? Where are they getting all of this shit from? How yeah, do you I, develop I, and design? It, go ahead, go ahead. They, they, they're described as an agriculture society, and that's kind of what the uh, um, 
the 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 world at large knows them as is just a small poor agrarian nation that they that that they do occasionally send aid to but wakanda is for all intents and purposes a a, a strictly controlled no immigration hardly any emigration um hardly any sort of real trade occurring especially with their one big thing vibranium and yep it's described as having a GDP of something like six trillion or something. Something it's it's something absolutely ridiculous. And while they could be a six trillion GDP nation if they decide to sell the most important metal in the Marvel universe, but they don't. Because as I mentioned before, when when we were a non globalized economy, we didn't make as much money until we figured out that if we just sold our goods to everybody, everyone would make a lot more money. Guess what? You don't make any money if you're not selling anything to anybody. That's how selling works. You have to have somebody to trade with in order to benefit from those products. Otherwise, you're just sitting on your own somewhere, just doing your own damn thing. We literally just talked about it five minutes ago about how we realized that bananas uh, can be very cheaply manufactured and sold for a thousand times a profit margin. Yes, very, very, very easily. If you don't sell the bananas... They don't do anything. They don't do anything, Sergio. They don't do anything to anybody. All you have is bananas. Vibranium cannot become food. It can't feed the kind of society that Wakanda has. Unless Wakanda has a whole bunch of population purging genocides every generation, I highly, highly, highly doubt that they're ever going to be able to support the kind of people that they have living there. It's just also comically unrealistic. If if they didn't want to sell vibranium for the sole purpose of it's, 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 it's something that would wreak havoc among the natural order. Why not sell things like your plumbing inventions and stuff like that? They're at like a 23, like, like year 2300 society in 2020. Why didn't you sell gunpowder because you probably figured that out um plumbing uh teaching people how to do irrigation get sell toilets um i don't mm-hmm. know i'm so good at plumbing um like you get what i mean they they could have become a tech giant easily quite quite easily they are in fact a tech giant they just don't do anything with that for the they rest they figured out of the how world. to make skyscrapers before yeah. everybody else, probably they could yep. have sold that. They yep. could have, so they could t- taught people how to do that. Could have done a lot of stuff, whole bunch of stuff. Never did. Uh, it's just so stupid with how they have it set up. It's just so so goddamn convoluted. I don't know why it has to be so goddamn convoluted. Especially with Killmonger's slight, 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 very slight point that Africa, for all intents and purposes, is poor, starving, and dehydrated. And Wakanda sat back and did nothing. Nothing. Not a damn thing. And we aren't even talking about taking our super advanced weapons and kicking all the colonizers out. We're just talking about, like, food shipments. Water systems, water treatment plants, none of yes. that, nothing. Mm-hmm. The Rwandan genocide, 
Never nope. stopped it. Didn't even buy apartheid in South Africa. Mm-mm. No. Mm-mm. Yeah. Why, why? Why would we stop that? Why would we stop that? You know. You know. Africa has a lot of gold. Uh, you know that would be really nice to trade for vibranium. Mm-hmm. It would. It would. Africa is 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 actually pretty uh pretty uh, uh rich in um minerals and ores and a lot of things that you would like to trade why do you think there was the scramble for africa wakanda didn't do any scrambling no they won't trade with anybody nope not gonna not gonna try to trade with a damn thing the trade non thing that they have going on in wakanda is just it it seems totally bullshit to most people that we even complain about this i think but uh Knowing anything about economics just makes it such a complete shit show from top to bottom. And even in the world building, like, dude, what do you mean they literally just invented all these things because they knew about vibranium? That's not how that works. Just because you're next to steel doesn't mean you know how to use it. (sighs) Also, also, I don't necessarily believe that the people of Wakanda for 2,000 years wouldn't fall to corruption and people who want to use the, 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 the technology to become a superpower. Yes, I agree. Like, 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 come on! What, what? It, it, you, you were more, you were more, you had morals in the year 500 B. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. No, no, that's not. Yeah. Human beings have 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 been giving in to their base, uh, terrible, immoral urges at the beginning of time. You're you're telling me that you didn't do your own brand of colonization or uh, warring or genocide. It would only make sense that they would. It it's just how it works. It's just how it goes, man. Especially because according to, they have a constitutional monarchy. You're the telling fuck? me that said monarch never died and some asshole took over. Yeah, that that especially is just total bullshit from beginning to end. Just just complete nonsense from top to bottom. Yeah, uh, uh, let's see here. Econ- going to the the Marvel key economy, the monetary used unit in Wakanda is the Wakanda dollar. The major resource of the company is vibranium. They have used this mineral to turn into one of the most economically stable nations on the planet. They were isolationists only in trade when needed. Vibranium is sold at ten thousand dollars per gram. That's U.S. And Wakanda's sacred mound is estimated to have about ten thousand tons of the material. Other major resources include uranium, coal, diamonds, but also aer- aeronautics and aircraft manufacture. Damn. Yeah, uh, extremely isolationist. They did not invade or provoke any other nations, but if another entered their territory, they retaliate with deadly force. They remained this way for thousands of years until the modern era where they decided to join the global community. This is still a matter of contention for the Wakandan people. Which, you know, that that you know that 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 makes sense that eventually they decided, you know what, we need to uh um uh, become non-isolationist but until mm-hmm. the day that Wakanda decided that they were going to become globalized they weren't rich they they were just a real like 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 they, they there's six million people in a small country with a lot of tech that are just sitting on it yeah it they have no trade they're not part of the world at all 
in any meaningful way. And it's just, it's just a damn shame that they don't fucking do anything with them. That's remotely realistic. Oh, all right. And and if if you don't like 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 believe us that um uh that that that, that uh what do you call it the um that the uh, shit doesn't make sense. Well, 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 yeah, but the isolation doesn't kill economies. Look at uh, uh, uh Japan, um, or yep. the Japan. U.S. when we were isolationists. Mm-hmm. Yep. It isolation Actually, does not work. You don't get your money. Believe it or not. Uh, yeah. So, for example, uh, in nineteenth, uh, uh, well, at least in this date, I, 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 I can, I can go back as far as nineteen twenty nine. The uh, GDP of the United States in nineteen twenty nine was uh, one hundred four billion U.S. dollars. In twenty twenty, uh, it's about twenty thousand billion U.S. dollars, which is a couple trillion. Hmm. But you see, the, the, the America's GDP only goes up. Why does it only go up? Because we're getting more globalized. Yeah. Because we have things to sell to sell to people. It's just, it's just how it goes. It's not even controversial. Just how that bitch works. Yeah, like uh, if we if we go if we go far, if we go far far back as like uh, in this one graph, uh, nineteen hundred, it was only twenty twenty billion. And then now it's up to like a hundred billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that concludes our uh, our little talk on tax taxes, economics, and politics in fiction. Um, yep. Uh, so some last bullet points that we have here is that uh, being for profit doesn't make you for genocide and death. Dead people don't pay taxes for pro- or or buy products. Uh, neither do slaves. Also, slavery is also yeah. as an institution ki- kind of jank economically. Um, yeah, it doesn't work very well. And you also see, for other reasons. Don't have money. Yeah, slaves don't have money to buy things. Kind of crazy. Yeah, they, they, they cost you money. Yes. Yes, they do. Not only do you have to buy them, but you also have to keep them alive and feed them. Yes. As well as any kind other of things of slave revolts and stuff like that, it's 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 a hassle. Just pay people the minimum wage or whatever, fifteen dollars an hour. Yeah, it it works out a with lot the slavery in with money. the wage slaves, <laughs> the wages. Yeah, Bring the on wages. the wages. Uh, uh, also, have fun. Have s- yes. Always have depth to your uh, your your mustache twirling. Uh, we gotta weaponize the the stuff. Adjusts belt buckle. Yes. One dimension quite. is sometimes fine, but characters with depth are always better. One dimension is funny. It's not fun to watch for great lengths of time. Rarely, maybe not. Not really, though. Not really, though. All right. We love you. Goodbye.